0: Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 20, She's Crafty, recorded on August 11th, 2014. My name is Julie Fafan Balzer, and with me is my
1: co-host, Eileen Shoebalzer. Hi, Mom. Hi, Julie. I know you had a uh, new experience last week which was, uh, well, why don't you tell us about it?
0: Well, first of all, I had a new experiences which I went down South and I have come back wanting to say, hey, y'all, <laughs> to just about everyone I meet. It's really, the Southern accent is so seductive. But the reason I went down South really is because I went to the Brother Back to Business conference, which was interesting. So I've just been um, chosen to be a spokesperson for the Scan and Cut, which is really, it's exciting because it's a product I use and I love. But more than that, it's interesting. So this was a conference that was all their dealers, the people who sell like brother sewing machines. And I'm not really in the sewing area of things very much. I really am much more in the paper area of things. And so it was interesting because for the sewing um, dealers, you know, they're selling machines that are $10,000, $15,000. So for them, this $500 scanning cut is like a whatever add on. In fact, there are embroidery hoops, a hoop. That is a piece of plastic, an embroidery hoop, okay, for their machine that's close to the price of the scan and cut like a three or $400. So it was so interesting because they were seeing it as like a little toy that their customers would add on to stuff. Whereas when I talk to people in like the paper crafting and scrapbook world, it's a huge big buy that like you save and save and save because it's like the biggest buy you have. So it was just interesting to see a really different customer base,
1: you know? And how do they sell it when they don't some of them don't do paper crafting?
0: Well, actually, I mean that's the thing which is the scan and cut was actually developed by Brother to cut fabric and then the, they somebody was like, "Oh, but it cuts paper too and we should market it that way also." So really what I did during most of my demos is I spent the most of my time showing people, um, there's two, two really cool things, which is A, obviously shapes for applique. You can cut out a million different things out of fabric and really detailed, et cetera. But B, it also does this cool thing where it can draw on your sewing line and then cut a quarter-inch seam allowance for when you're piecing. So that, especially if you're a beginning quilter, like you never have to worry about using a rotary cutter or thinking about your quarter-inch seam allowance. It's actually like the line is drawn on for you and then the cut is there. So I mainly spent my time like just demonstrating to people, I have Julie's four fabulous tips for cutting fabric with a scanning cut. And so that was basically what I did for a lot of the
1: time. That sounds interesting. It's something you've never done. Yeah,
0: I always like new experiences. Although I have to say, the convention center was so over air conditioned, I thought because I was going to the south that I should bring all sundresses, but it turned out that I should have brought like a parka and, you know, jeans or something.
1: A lesson learned.
0: I know, but the food was good, so that that was the happy part of it. I ate biscuits and gravy for breakfast like every day, which was also a bad thing, but <laughs> we can talk about that another time. Anyway, let's talk about our guest. So our guest today is Jennifer Priest, also known as Hydrangea Hippo, and Jennifer enjoys crafts of all genres, from sewing to scrapbooking to jewelry with a little dabbling in the mixed media world, and her style is approachable, and she wants everyone who sees her work to feel that they, too, can embrace creativity and make their home. Home and life beautiful. So welcome Denver.
2: Hey, glad to be here with you guys today.
0: <laughs> I'm, we're excited that you're you're from sunny California, aren't you? Uh
2: yeah, that's a misnomer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is the weather not nice
2: where you are? Um it's pretty nice. It's really, really hot where I'm at. I'm in the desert, so
1: hmm.
2: well, are, you, um... are you
1: having the water issue?
2: No, actually I'm really lucky because our town has a well that's dedicated to our town. So, like, my garden is really lush. <laughs> we, don't, we don't depend on the, the um, water from the northern part of the state. Good.
0: That is lucky. So, I know, uh, Jennifer, you are a crafty queen, and you do, you do really get around, <laughs> so to speak, in the craft world. Um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us how crafting became your job. How did that, how did that whole role happen? What's your story?
2: Yeah, it's kind of a crazy thing. Um, You know, I I always crafted from when I was a little kid. I went to craft fairs and stuff. I was very uh, entrepreneurial. I was always, like, organizing the neighborhood kids to do things. So that business part of it was always in my blood. And when I um, had my daughter, when I was pregnant with my daughter back in, like, 1998, (laughs) I got a mail order scrapbooking kit. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And I started scrapbooking. And I I just, you know, kind of went to the local craft store. I didn't really um, know about I'm this. I'm having world. a moment,
0: Jennifer, I have to tell you because I'm thinking, so 1998 is like almost 20 years ago, right? Am I crazy? Yeah. And like, that's impossible for you to have yeah. a child that old, isn't it? <laughs> She's,
2: my daughter's 15. She's almost go. 16. Yeah. <laughs> that seems impossible. No, I'm like way older than her. <laughs> Okay.
0: Actually,
2: I'm, <laughs> I I was flying back from Atlanta and I was in the airport and um so I was in the south last week and this lady kept at the little deli counter where I was ordering food, she kept saying, Young lady, and I was like, How old do you think I am? Like <laughs> but anyway. You do uh, look really young. <laughs> yeah. So uh like with the crafting thing, I, I didn't know about like There was this whole industry behind it. Like I knew people were making stuff in magazines, but it wasn't on my radar. I was in college. I was working, and in two thousand three, a friend of mine took me to Scrapbook Expo, and like my whole my mind was blown. Like I just got bit by the bug really, really bad, and I was like, I want to have a business, and I want to teach here. And within six months, I had a booth. I was teaching at Scrapbook Expo.
0: How did you Um, do that? How did you make that leap in six months?
2: So I'm, I'm pretty driven, and it was all these things that kind of converged together. Um, I ended up signing for a multi-level marketing company called Leaving Prince. It's no longer around. Um, but they were really pushy with, like, motivating you. And I had just graduated college. I couldn't find a job. I had two bachelor's degrees. And I was like, you know what? This is, these people are making money. Like, I could totally do this. And so,
0: so is I a mar- started is a multi-level marketing. Is that like what stamping, stamping up or something uh-huh. like that is? Is that okay?
2: Yeah. We have parties. You sign people up under you. Like I wouldn't recommend doing that for a business, but you know, just trying to get in. I was a single mom at the time. Like it, it was, it was something easy for me to, to get my foot in the door. Um, and it was easy to understand, Whereas, you know, trying to navigate the industry the way that we do was something that I just I couldn't understand that. Um, So, yeah, I started doing all of that and getting really into it. And then I ended up getting a full time job. And so I stopped doing all of the crafty stuff. I mean, I I still crafted, but I stopped teaching because I didn't have time. I worked like a 40 hour a week job. And then all of a sudden I got fired And that was like the most crazy, awful moment in my life. And, um, you know, luckily everything worked out. Like a week later, my husband got a promotion and I could afford to stay home. And the local scrapbook store was like all over it when I got fired. They're like, hey, you can come teach for us now. You have all the spare time. And I was like, what? I had a career, you know, so... (laughs) So um that's kind of how I got started. And I, I started looking at it and going, hey, I really can like do this as a business, as an independent person and make money on it and be home with my kids.
0: And and I know there was a there's a somewhat famous video of you and your kids kidding right oh, around yeah. <laughs> the table. It's like an insane can you describe that video for people?
2: So um, people don't really know what goes into it when you're trying to run this business out of your house. And I um, used to teach a lot of classes, and so I'd have to kit them, and I like to have everything in order. So basically the video is us in um, what is now my studio. It wasn't my studio at that time. It was my my formal living room (laughs) slash prep room. And I had all these tables set up in there with stacks and stacks of product that went into the kits. And we were die cutting and gathering ribbon together and and stacking different pieces of the kits together to assemble them. And it does turn into like an all family affair. And
0: are your kids crafty as a result of sort of being steeped in it?
2: Sort of. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like, Katie goes back and forth, my 15-year-old, she goes back and forth on whether or not she wants to craft, and, you know, I'm like, hey, if you want to do it, that's awesome, Um, but if you don't want to do it, that's fine, too. But uh, Matthew, he really, he's really bitten by the craft bug, and he actually has videos on my YouTube channel. He has his own little videos that he does.
0: That's cool. What kind of stuff does he do, and how old is he?
2: Matthew's seven. Um... And he does some pretty simple stuff. Um, I have a couple videos that I'm getting ready to edit um, where he built like a little toolbox with a kit from Home Depot and painted it with acrylic paint. Um, He really likes making cards. He likes making greeting cards and stamping them for people. So and he wants his new thing he wants to try is ice resin.
0: (laughs) Ooh. and do you do you supervise him a lot during this kind of stuff or is he sort of off to the races by himself?
2: Um, I, I sort of supervise them. I say, okay, this is where you can work. This is the stuff you can use. I'm, I'm pretty like type a about my craft area. So I'm like, don't touch this other stuff over here. And I'm usually like, you know, in my office, which is adjoined to my studio now. So I'll be watching him.
0: Well, there you go. And is your is your husband crafty at all? I know I've seen him at Cha helping you out, and I don't know whether that's just because he loves you so much,
2: or because he's also steeped in the craft. Um, I think it's a little of both. Like he said multiple times that the only reason he does crafts is so that he can see me. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty bad. Um, I mean, I am pretty. I'm pretty. Uh, it pretty much takes over my life. But um, he. Does like making stuff, but I think he's more of a maker he He really likes you know with the gadgets, the gears, the circuitry, and things. Um, one of his things that he did, which I still need to blog. I'm trying to get him to do his own blog. I don't have time to blog his stuff, but he <laughs> <laughs> wants you to blog this. Um, he had a cell phone, actually, it was my old cell phone that broke, and he used ice resin to fix the cover with seed beads and made buttons out of ice resin and seed beads for this cell phone.
0: Oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. That is pretty super crafty. So <laughs> let's um let's back up for a moment and just talk about YouTube for a second, because I know that's a big part of your business. Um, how did you develop your, you know, filming and editing and whatever else kind of skills?
2: Well, I really didn't know what I was doing. And I mean, I, I would have I would like to see the the channel have grown more by now, but the fact that anybody's watching it I feel is an accomplishment. Um, I started with a camcorder that I got from my parents, like a really old camcorder. And um, I'm surprised it's digital. It doesn't take tapes. It was like from the beginning. <laughs> and
0: uh, So it must be just, enormous then, like the size of a sofa.
2: Uh, no, it's not too bad. But it, it's like one of the early like digital no tape camcorders. I think mm-hmm. my dad paid like $1,000 for it. Um so I started with that and just kind of trying to figure out, like, how to do videos. I started looking at YouTube videos and going, geez, if they can do this, I can totally do this. Because um, some of those videos are bad. And I thought, geez, I could definitely <laughs> do better than that. Um, and so I, well, just started-
0: <laughs> I was going to say, well, while we're talking about that, like, what do you think makes for a good YouTube video versus a bad one?
2: You know, I think, I think lighting is key. And it, that is something that I have struggled with. Um, and I actually had a company I wanted to work with tell me that they couldn't work with me because of my lighting.
0: Wow. So I bought,
2: I bought lights because I'm like, I want to make my stuff better. And did Um, you just
0: buy, did you just go like on Amazon and look for reviews and buy like photo lights or did you buy general lights or...
2: I bought soft boxes and what I did is I went to Tanner Bell um, from A Little Craft in Your Day and I was like, hey Tanner, I need lights. What lights do you use? (laughs) And he told me. So I actually, I get asked about lights all the time. So I did a blog post about it on my blog. Um, It's just like a hundred dollar set of two soft boxes and I use them for my videos and for taking pictures and they've they've been a great tool for me. But I couldn't justify that hundred dollar cost like out the gate. I needed to see if it was going to work. I need to see if anybody was going to watch me on YouTube first. So it was about a year before I bought the lights.
0: But that's made a big difference. So besides lighting, what do you think makes for good crafty video?
2: Um, Definitely being respectful of the, the watcher's time. So there's so many videos where I've watched it and it's like 30 minutes of blabbering and nothing going on. And I really think that that's kind of, it's, it's one way to connect with your people but I'm like, hey I don't, I don't have time to watch 30 minutes of stuff before I get to your tutorial. I just want to see you make cool stuff And so I think that um, really makes a difference is I, I look at I'll, I'll search on YouTube and the videos that I love they like get right into the meat of the project and and you know maybe they have talking maybe they have music but I can I can just watch the project two three minutes really nice. When it's like a 45 minute YouTube video, uh, I don't, I don't have time to watch that.
0: You know, I totally feel that way. And I, I wonder sometimes because there must be an audience for those longer videos because people keep making them, etc. But I know that for myself personally, like when I go looking for a technique or an idea, I want like quick in, quick out, just give me the meat and let me go.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's one way to have a lot of subscribers, I think, because those people do tend to have a lot of subscribers that have connected with them on like a personal level. And they're, they're very connected, like a friend almost. Um, but I just don't have time for that. I feel like I'm offering something a little bit different. Uh, and that's kind of the beauty of YouTube is that there's, there's an audience for everybody. Um, I like short, quick craft tutorials. I want to do things that are useful. I want to help people uh, see kind of behind the scenes. Like one of the things they really like to do is say, hey, I totally messed this up. And here's how I fixed it. <laughs>
0: Me too, because I think like that's the place that you learn always is like if it's done perfectly every time, then you think there's something wrong with you when you don't do it right. When you see the person demoing it mess up, then you realize, oh, this happens to everyone and there is a way to fix it. I don't have to live with it, you know?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess going back to what you were talking about, how did I learn like the editing and the filming and all that? Yeah. Um, it was a lot of trial and error. Like I was trying to make these long videos. And then when you first start on YouTube, I don't know if it's like this anymore, but when you first start on YouTube, you can only make five minute videos. So I was like, my first video is me running around my scrapbook room as fast as I can, trying to tell, trying to do a tour in five minutes. (laughs) So, I mean, it's like, I learned a lot from trial and error. I started out with, um, Windows Movie Maker, which um, is really easy to use. But very quickly, I wanted to do editing that Windows Movie Maker couldn't do. So I looked into some other programs, and they're really pricey. And I'm on Adobe Creative Cloud. So I started using Premiere Pro, which has a crazy learning curve. And um, I found out that Liz Hicks uses Premiere Pro. So I've been like, hey, Liz, can you tell me how to do this (laughs) Because, that you know, asking people, going on YouTube, you know, I'll Google like how to do a tr- video transition on Premiere Pro and I'll I'll watch someone else's YouTube video on how to do it. That's that's a lot of how I've learned it. I didn't go to school or anything.
0: It is amazing to me how much wonderful information is out there, because I know that like anytime I have a problem with something, I Google it. And like if I can't find an answer on Google, then I'm like, wow, I have found the one unique problem in the world. That no one else has ever had you know and then i'm like that i'm definitely doing something wrong now
2: no you should make a video of that like (laughs) no that's what i do i'm like hey nobody's answered this question i should totally make a video of how to do this there you go if only i had a solution for it then i would
0: um so let's just talk for a second about um one of the things that you've consistently said is that when you've had a problem you've gone to people and asked for their help
2: Mm-hmm. you know,
0: and asked for their advice. And I imagine like, you know, you, you gotta have to be brave to do that. Is that something that just comes naturally to you or do you have to like psych yourself up to ask people for help like that?
2: It's it's definitely come easier. Um, and over the years, you know, networking with a lot of different people, figuring out like, okay, this person really knows how to do X, Y, Z. So I can call on them for that. And and I try not to just have it be one-sided, right? They ask I ask them a question, but then I'm like, Oh, what can I do for you? Or, you know, I try to find something useful that I can exchange. Um, but yeah, it's come it's come easier over time. Like definitely the more you do it, the easier it is the same with painting. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Well, I'm pretty good now at asking people for advice.
0: But it's true. I mean, that's always, that is a good way to go. Always. If there's someone whose work is good or who you know does a good job, it's just to say to them, like, what are you doing to do that? And most of the time, I find that people want to help you.
2: Yeah. And and to know that there's a threshold, right? Like you can't ask people way too much stuff in too much detail without then paying them or something. Because I think at some point it becomes, it starts to encroach on their time and it starts to be you know, there's a fine line between where it becomes, you know, flattering to them that, oh, you're asking me for advice, to then where it becomes bothersome and almost disrespectful that you want too much. So That's
0: a really good point. And I know because you're a social media expert, right? And you do a lot of social media for a number of large craft companies.
2: Yeah, and, and I get people who ask me for advice all the time. And there comes a point where I have to kind of cut it off and say, oh, this question requires a much more in-depth response. And I'd be happy to set up a consultation with you, <laughs> you know, because I do have to respect my clients that are paying for that information. And, you know, th- there's a threshold to how much how much you can give. And it's, I just do it as a gut check.
0: I do think that it's one of those things where people, for whatever reason, wouldn't go up to like a doctor or a lawyer or maybe they do ask for free advice they from do. them. Who knows? I they guess do they, do. The time. I do, they,
1: they do. it do. all the time. They do it all the time.
0: Well, there you go. So people just want free advice all the time.
2: I think I think they don't look at it that way. Um, I think they see it as flattering, especially if you're someone who's out there, like, essentially, and I'm doing air quotes right now that you can't see, <laughs> doing it for free anyway. Like, I have a social marketing for crafters group. I'm always putting advice in there. So people, I think it's easy to think, like, well, gee, she's always giving advice. She wants to help. So... I should just ask. And it doesn't mean that I don't want people asking me. It's just at some point, you know, it becomes you have to draw a line. And so I'm very conscious of that when I'm then asking for advice because I'm like, okay, well, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Because I don't want to just take, 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 you know?
0: Hmm. I feel that way too. I mean, and you teach online classes too, I know, and classes in person, obviously. And I, I often think about People are paying for the content that I offer in an online class or in an in-person class and I need to be careful in my blogging and Instagramming and whatever else thing that I'm not giving that content away, you know, and devaluing it.
2: Definitely, definitely. And that's a really hard balance to find. Like I'm always wanting to do YouTube content, but then I'm like, okay, I can't, if I'm doing all this stuff for free over here, how can I expect people to pay me for this stuff over in another place?
0: Yeah, but it's, it, it's 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 really – because on the one hand, like, there, I've heard advice, which I really believe in, which is that the more that you give away, the more that comes back to you, and I do believe that. But at mm-hmm. the same time, I never want anybody to say, like, oh, this class isn't worth the value or doing this isn't worth the – you know what I mean? And I just, I don't, it's something I struggle with constantly, which is where is the line? Because I am a sharer. I love sharing. And one of the things that's so addictive to me about like Instagram is it's like I'm making something and I'm super excited about it. And I'm like, you guys, look at what I just made. It's awesome. Right. And I'm so excited. But then on the other hand, I keep thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't share it and I should hold it for my blog or I should wait for this. This is paid content. that shouldn't go here. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. And, and That's why I never have anything published, because I want to share it so fast. And I'm like, oh, darn, I put that picture on Instagram. I can't submit this.
0: Although, you know, there are a number of magazines nowadays who I've heard from who they're like, I don't care if it was online. Like, we have a different audience than the people who are Um, scouring blogs and like I've even the Somerset brand of magazines has contacted me numerous times based on stuff I posted to the web and they've been like can we take your blog post and make it into an article which I find really interesting but I think it's again this theory that the people who are online looking at stuff are different than the people who are buying magazines
2: yeah and yeah That's probably true. I mean, they would know better than I would.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think it's also like somebody once said to me about online classes and stuff like that, which is that there are people who are just never going to pay for online classes. It doesn't matter if you make it one dollar or if it's one thousand dollars. They're just never going to do it, you know. And so you're not trying to get those people into your classes.
2: You know, it's interesting, these, um, some ladies who are local up here by me, we're kind of in a rural area, they're like, hey, can you do a class at our house on mixed media canvas? And I was like, sure. And so um, when the lady who organized it introduced me to the students, she was like, you can find all this stuff for free on YouTube, but I don't want to have to dig around through all that stuff. So I thought we should take a class from Jennifer because she'll tell us, you know, what to do, what not to do, and you don't have to worry about good and bad things you'd find on YouTube. So that's a very interesting thing for me to hear that people are willing to pay for a class because they just don't have the time or money to waste on things that don't do or don't work, and then to search through all the content that's out there.
0: It's really interesting because it's almost like you become a curator to them. It's like you're a curator of knowledge. They're, you're a trusted source, and they feel like they're going to be able to get the to weed out everything else once they hear it from you.
2: Yeah, it was it was a really interesting thing to hear. I like that, and
0: I think, you know, I often, um, I know that I take a lot of classes, and what is the reason I take classes, and often it's just because, yes, that information exists in a book, yes, it probably exists online, but there is something about not only seeing it in person, but I really like the camaraderie of an in-person class, where you are seeing what other people are making, and you're, somebody else brings a different kind of paint with them, and you're like, whoa, what is that, where did you get it, can I try it, you know? or whatever else there's something about that synergy of a community that gets created in a class that you just don't find when you're in front of your computer by yourself you know
2: yeah and and then differentiating that from YouTube I mean how many times have have you searched because I've had this happen too. I've searched for how to do something on Premiere Pro for example and I get all these like crazy wacky videos that have nothing to do with it and I've wasted all this time it would probably be better for me to just pay for a class
0: yeah And get the concentrated one perspective content that you're looking for.
2: Yeah. And you know you're going to get a better quality product because you're paying for it.
0: Although I would say sometimes that's not always true. Well, yeah. That's the hope. That's the hope. Yeah. Is that it's true. But yeah. So let's talk a little bit about – now tell me if I'm totally wrong on this. Do I recall that you and your husband were both in the military?
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a whole other chapter of your life? It is. I do sometimes feel like I've lived like these different, very different lives. Um, so I joined the military when I was 18 and, um, it's a long sordid story, but basically I went to language school in Monterey and that's where I met my husband. So um, at the Defense Language Institute, he was learning Serbo-Croatian. We're talking in the late 90s here. And I had to go to school for Arabic. So that's where we met.
0: (laughs) And are you you both very bilingual now?
2: Not really. Um, I mean, I can recognize Arabic if I hear it. I can still write it. I can write people's names in it. Um, But as far as, like, trying to be fluent or translate anything, I mean, I'll pick up on words here and there, but... I'm not that good at it. There's not a lot of people for me to practice with.
0: And do you think that your military background has had any flu- influence on your craft life?
2: It has. Um, it makes me have a lot less patience. <laughs> One of the things in the in the military that w- was very much stressed is this um, idea of attention to detail. So, like say you would clean your rifle and someone would come through with a white glove and check that you cleaned it really really well. And so when I'm doing things, I I have this it kind of, you know, drills it into you to have this attention to detail. And I can see it when other people don't have attention to detail. Um on the flip side I do make a lot of typos. I don't really care about that, but <laughs> most things I have have this intense attention to detail. And the other thing that it gave me this perspective on was during basic training. Cause I didn't go into combat. I didn't go anywhere exciting. I went to Texas. Um, so I don't have those kinds of stories to pull off of, but in basic training people, you know, it's two months and people were having like mental breakdowns and I managed to get a perspective on things like, Hey, this is really awful right now what we're going through, but it's temporary. This isn't how the rest of your life is going to be. And so when things are rough, you know, I kinda think back to that and I'm like, okay, this is temporary, we can work through it, you know, and, and uh my rest of my life's not gonna be like this. So That's a good that's- way
0: of thinking about it. I mean, it, what's that thing they say? Nothing in life is permanent except death and taxes. <laughs> true. Which is really true, right? And, but I mean, I think I have this theory that nothing in your life is wasted. Like people are often like, "Oh, I wasted all this time doing this thing when I should have been doing this other thing." But I think like every experience brings you something in your next life, and it's funny because I was um, I was filming some videos yesterday with a friend of mine, and you know when I when I introduce myself on camera, I always say my name in a very particular way. I put a pause between each part of my name, so I say, "Hi, my name is Julie Bayfan Balzer." And that's because in my previous life as a theater person, the first thing in audition technique that they teach you is never run your name together as one word because people won't be able to tell because it's not familiar to them. Even if you have a common name, what your first and your last name are, mm-hmm. so you need to separate them. And I was like, how is that? That's something that's so stupid, right? It's so stupid and so small. And yet it's something now all the time because I do a lot of film work that I use or like even on when I introduce myself on this podcast that I use all the time from my previous life. And I think there are little tiny things like that. Like I talked to a woman the other day who had done some packaging work at an old company. And so she took the lessons she had learned at that packaging company, you know, going forward. And when she was starting to make stuff for her own shop and it's like, she thought she didn't ever think that that was going to translate into her creative career, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of lessons I've learned. And one of the things, I mean, it wasn't really something I really wanted to do going into the military, and I didn't do anything, like, spectacular while I was in. Like, I couldn't be like, oh, I went over and fought in Iraq. I didn't do anything like that. You didn't
0: carry, like, 12 men on your back out of a, you <laughs> no. know, bunker that do, was full of yeah. being fired upon, and okay.
2: No, I didn't do anything super exciting. <laughs> but... um It's been such a benefit in my life over the long term. Like it was really bad and really good. It's a very intense experience. But, uh, you know, I see young people and if they're struggling, I'm like, go in the military. Because it's helped me so much financially over my lifetime, like having healthcare from the VA, to being able to go to college, to evoke rehab, to helping me buy my house. All these different benefits that there are that now I'm just like, oh, I'm so thankful that I did that. Because it's it's still helping me in my life to this day.
0: You know, and I actually think there are a lot of things like that in life. It's like, you know, I hated doing learning like some of the very basic, like boring parts of like HTML and coding and stuff. Mm-hmm. But now when I have to do website stuff, I'm like, oh, my God, thank God I know how to do that. Otherwise, I would be I would be paying somebody, you know, insane amounts of money to do it. Or, you know, other things I think like learn the basic rules of design, learn the basic rules of, you know, anything else. And it's like once you have that foundation, I think it does carry you through your life in a lot of different ways.
2: Yeah, the same with with going to college, you know, how much I look at how much my perspective on the world changed from before I started college to when I got my bachelor's degree. And then from there, how much my perspective changed after I got a master's degree, it really, was a good experience, even though I feel like I don't use my degrees at all in my, my work. What, what, what are your degrees in? <laughs> I have a bachelor's in math, a bachelor's in English literature, and a master's in public administration.
0: Man, you are so well-rounded. You have a bachelor's <laughs> in math and English. Like, who? that's kind of
2: amazing. It, it, was, it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> at some point, I thought I wanted to be a teacher, so I, I just ah. didn't do that. Oh,
0: interesting. But did you ever teach? I mean, I obviously you teach in a different kind of way, but did you ever teach school?
2: Yeah, actually, I was a substitute teacher for eight or nine years. And during wow. that time, I taught algebra in summer school to 100 high schoolers. And um, I just started subbing again in May um, because I wanted to get out of the house. I, I spent so much time alone. I was like, I don't see people. I need to like do something so <laughs> I started substitute teaching again and the school year just started today so I will probably start getting calls.
0: Cool. Uh, do you teach do you substitute teach at the same school that your kids are in?
2: No, I used to be in that district but now I'm actually substitute teaching in the school district where I went to school. So oh. that's been surreal like going to my old high school. <laughs> are
0: there still teachers there from when you were a student?
2: Yes. And then I looked up one of my friends online the other day because I was thinking about him from way when we were in high school. And I was like, oh, he's an English teacher there. I was like, that'll be so weird if I get called this of his class. Like,
0: <laughs> It's funny how life is cyclical like that, you know? Yeah. So uh, a couple things, which is so one, I'm just curious about um, you obviously – have good relationships with a lot of companies and that's how you get your work doing your social media now I'm curious do you advertise yourself do they come and find you is it word of mouth how does that happen how does that part of your business happen
2: I would say it's like 50 50 word of mouth and then well maybe like 30 70 70 percent word of mouth and like 30 percent like cold calling and not cold calling like I pick up the phone, but like, you know, i go up to them at the trade show and I kind of start a connection. But the majority of it is um, referrals, like my, my work I do with clear. Can I talk about specific companies? Yes, of course. You can talk about any specific company you'd like to. Like ClearSnap, that was because they asked another designer, hey, do you know someone who does social media? And they gave them my name. So, like, that's kind of how a lot of it happens. We'll just start having some conversations, and sometimes um, leads take a long time. Like, I was in this business coaching uh, thing for nine months called Count Me In. It was like a national competition, and then you you get picked and you get nine months of business coaching in a group coaching thing. And what we did is we looked at our lead. You know, the time from when you generate your lead to when you actually, they actually become a customer. And for me, it's like nine months to a year. I was like, oh, that's too long. But it's because it's all based on referral relationship. That's kind of how it works.
0: Well, I also find that I think that companies in the craft industry tend to move rather slowly um, towards decisions.
2: Yeah, I think it is hard. And, And when you're with something like that, it's really hard to trust somebody outside of your company who is not even close to you geographically to then manage all of your stuff online. It's a little scary.
0: So when you're, so let's talk, I mean, let's talk about some specifics if you don't mind. Are Can you tell us sort of uh, some of the clients that you have and what you do for them?
2: So ClearSnap, um, I would call ClearSnap and Ice Resin like my full-time kind of clients where, I manage all of their social media. So if you see, you know, ClearSnap saying, hey, what are you guys doing today on Facebook? That's me typing that. Um, Or if you send a message to ClearSnap on Twitter or Pinterest, any of that I'm managing for them. And the same for Ice Resin. So
0: do you do the content for them too or do they send you content?
2: So I like search the web for content. So I usually generate, it's a, it's a mix between generating content and sometimes they'll send me stuff. Like uh, this morning, Susan Leonard Kasmer's like, hey, such and such is going on. Can you put a blurb out about it? So then sometimes the company will tell me like, hey, we have this going on. We want you to promote it. And other times I'm just pulling from the blog, pulling from what I see the, the people responding to. Like if people are asking a lot of questions of, well, how do I heat emboss? well, I think we need to put some tips about heat embossing on there. Um, So I kind of find the content in addition to them sending me some. They probably send me maybe 10% of the content and the rest I'm finding.
1: Wow.
2: Yeah.
1: How do you ever take a vacation
2: vacation? Um, well, we'll see how that works. (laughs) I'm actually going on a cruise later this year for my husband's birthday and I plan to be unavailable for three days. So we'll see what happens. (laughs) Three whole days. I mean, I'll probably be on my phone, Uh, but you know, I do have like alerts and stuff. There are times where I have to, you know, I do turn my sound off at night. I do have to sleep. Um,
0: But you're really 24-7 then. I mean, you're talking about, so you work every seven days a week and, you know, you're always available then to your clients.
2: Yeah. I mean, I do, I do work shorter days during the week typically. Um, and I try to break it up. I definitely have a schedule, you know, I keep track of how many hours I'm doing for each client so that I'm not like giving too much or not giving enough, um, But, yeah, it is kind of a 24-7 thing. I would love to hire somebody, but I have really had a hard time finding someone. You know, and this kind of goes back to that military thing. I have really high expectations. So until then, it's going to be just me.
0: (laughs) Hard to find somebody to do it. That's always the problem with high expectations, right, is that you can't find somebody to do it the way that you would. Yeah. I'm very lucky, though. I have my mom monkey who will willingly <laughs> help me with a few
2: things. I'm sure you said that
1: affectionately.
0: I did with so much love <laughs> in my heart. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
2: We call our daughter monkey, so.
0: There I you go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I do have my family, but at some point I'm like, we do got to spend time together. We can't just all be like working Jennifer's craft business. <laughs>
0: So. If we, Well, it becomes a whole family thing. That's the thing I've always thought, like when you go to a restaurant, um, there are a couple of restaurants in our community where like I would totally growing up see like the restaurant owner's kids, you know, they're there every day, you know, and when they're little, they're doing their homework or they're playing. And then as they grow up, they're waiting tables and they're working. And it's like, that's, a, that's what a family business is, you know?
1: Well, that's the model of the family farm. I think it's a very old model. Everybody works together to make the family's economics work out.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, I talk to my family and I'm like, hey, you guys like all the fun stuff we can do because mom has a job and makes money. So you got to help me. (laughs) You know, but that's true, too. You know, and, I, and it it helps them. I mean, they learn a lot of skills, you know. Like, one of the things that's so great is, like, anytime my kids go somewhere, um, I get compliments back. Like, oh, they were so helpful. Oh, they knew how to do this. And I'm like, wow, that's awesome. I love that. And it's because they're learning.
0: You got the good kids who clean up after
2: themselves. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, at other people's houses, though, not mine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's always the way it is Yeah. so what are you working on right now crafty wise anything exciting that you can share with us
2: Um. well I'm on a few design teams so that's been kind of fun um,
0: what design teams are you on
2: so I just got on Jamie Doherty's team for Bloom Girls um, she just started her own design team for her product line and I have a post due today that <laughs> I need to work on <laughs> I'm very, like, last minute. Um, And I feel like I do my best work when I'm under the gun. But uh, I so I'm on that team. And then I started with Stencil Girl a couple months back. And that's been really fun. Um, They're very organized. I love love the coordinator, Maria. She's amazing. And it's really great to work with Mary Beth. She's very accessible. And um, the products are just awesome. And then... I do I do some blogging for Clearsnap. Um, I'm on the smooth foam creative team, which is like uh, not styrofoam. It's like uh, like styrofoam, but not styrofoam. Um,
0: Julie McGuffey <laughs> runs that team, right?
2: Yeah, so Julie's like a lot of fun, and um, I just found on their website they have styrofoam or not styrofoam, smooth foam baby heads, oh. and I'm like we should make something. with those.
0: <laughs> So the big difference between um, styrofoam and smooth foam, my understanding is that like smooth foam is paintable in a way that styrofoam isn't.
2: Yeah. I mean, styrofoam is really, um, spongy and smooth foam is exactly what the name is. It's smooth. Um, it really behaves very differently and it's really fun to work with. It's, it's really dense and, um, I mean, there's just so many different things you can do with it. Every month I'm like, okay, what am I going to do now? And I try different things. And the team is very um, innovative with it. Like some of the girls carve it and some of them, um, I say girls, but ladies carve it. And um, you, know, you can hot glue all over it. You can do all these things, spray paint it, and it doesn't like melt. Um, so it's pretty cool. And then and felt I'm on their team with Deborah Quartermain runs that team. And that's been fun, doing stuff with felt. And I know I'm probably forgetting some teams. So I'm sorry if I (laughs) forgot a team. (laughs) Because I can't remember all of it. Um, So yeah, so I'm doing design team stuff. And then I'm looking at maybe doing like a license line. I don't know. I got to make art in order to have something to license. And I don't really make a lot of stuff that's licensable. So I'm working on that with a coach and kind of developing ideas and kind of figuring out if that's the way that I want to go. Mm -hmm. And then I'm working on some online classes because I was teaching on a platform called My Creative Classroom and they closed. So, or they're rebranding or I don't know what they're doing. But basically my classes that I was teaching there, I can't teach them in the same way anymore. So I'm moving over to self-hosted and I'm looking... So I'm trying to build that. So, again, learning curve. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a developer. But I'm trying to figure it out. And I'm looking to use another service for some smaller classes like uh, how my creative classroom was where they host the class, they take a percentage, they market it, and people can sign up. And, oh, I, I, I do, like, too many things. You know, I, you always hear those people that say, like, you should do, you should do like, three things and do them well. And I'm like, or, you know, because if you're spread too thin, you can't do things really well. And I'm like, "Ah, I really got to pick just three. Like, I can't. (laughs) So
0: I I always, I always heard it as you can have five priorities in your life. So it's like your family, you know, your job, your church, your, you know, whatever it is. But you can only have five. I don't know if that's true or not.
2: I don't know. Like this whole thing of like picking three things or five things in your business that you focus on as your business. I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I can't do that. So I have Etsy shop too that I'm starting to build back up and um, I had closed it for a while because I had like 600 SKUs and it was nuts. I couldn't manage all that inventory. What kind of things are
0: in your Etsy shop?
2: I have supplies and I have kits. So The whole Etsy shop started because I had extra supplies from when I was teaching classes. And people would be like, oh, that lace is really cool. I want to buy some. And I'm like, well, I don't really have a way to sell it. So I have lace, um, bits and baubles, little things. But I'm trying to keep it under 100 items. Because before I had, like, a crazy amount of items. It was nuts. So...
0: Let me just loop back for one second um, to the design teams, just because uh-huh. I am I would love to hear, like, what is it that you like about being a part of a design team? Okay, so... And by the way, for the people who don't know what a design team is, can you also explain that?
2: Yeah, so a design team is basically a group of designers, they may or may not blog, that a company then um, employs, they may pay them a fee, they may pay them by product, but they're, they're the people that make projects for the company, whether it's for the company's blog or for them to put on product packaging or however the company needs them to make finished projects with the craft products the company makes. So, um, I, I do design teams for a couple of different reasons. One is it's really nice to have your ego stroked by, and I'm just being very honest, it's really nice to have your ego stroked when you're accepted onto a team. Like you're competing with all these people to get on this team and out of all those people, they picked you. Like it feels really good. Um, And that's just a small part of it because I could apply to be on lots of teams if that's the only thing that I wanted. But um, the other part of it is if it's something that I think is going to challenge me as a designer... So, like, Stencil Girl was really cool because I want to kind of develop myself more in mixed media. They're very mixed media, and I wanted to challenge myself to do more artistic things from the brain. So, stencils, I think, are a stepping stone from being, like, a scrapbooker to going into mixed media and then going into actually, like, painting your own designs, so for me, it was start, part of, like, developing myself as a crafter. Um, and, and so Stencil Girl helps me do that. Um, the other part is reaching other audiences. You know, you're, I can only reach so many people with Hydrangea Hippo, but if I'm designing stuff on a company's blog, then that will help me reach other people that I don't already have in, like, my network. And uh, the other thing is companies I just like. You know, like I really like Deborah Cordermain. I've used Kunin felt forever. So it was really a natural fit to do stuff with Kunin. But at the same time, I'm always thinking like, okay, what can I do with felt that everybody else isn't thinking about doing? I need to do something different. Um, So it gives me a place to challenge myself. You know, I find if I'm just designing on my own, I'm stuck in a rut. But if I have an assignment, especially if it has a narrow focus, like use these three colors with this stencil and this is what you need to make. I really push myself and I create much better work with assignments.
0: So do you ever give yourself an assignment then in order to create that sort of situation?
2: No, I'm like very uh, like rebellious against myself when I try to do that. <laughs> like well, I you know.
0: This- I will say, like, one of the things that I I was on a lot of design teams years ago, and I remember that one of the things, again, for me, just like you, is I really felt like the challenge of a product I didn't, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't naturally be drawn to or an idea that I was given or something, you know, that I had to do forced me to be more creative than I think I would have been and definitely pushed me outside my box. And I think in some ways really helped me find my personal style because I would have certain crutches in a time crunch that I would go to. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how I knew that they were part of my personal style.
2: That's an interesting way to look at it because like if I find myself doing too much of something, I will make a rule that I can't do that thing for a while. So like, at one point I was inking all the. This is like way old school, super like basic crafter. I was inking all the edges of my paper with ink. I was at a at a scrapbook event, and this lady's like, "Can you make a page where you don't ink anything?" So then I challenged myself, and for like a month I didn't ink anything. And I'm always trying to like push myself and identify if I get in kind of a rut and and do something different. But then the problem with that is that my my it's so, what I do is so broad. Um, and I had this, I actually talked to Kathy Conomario about this. She had an art retreat this weekend and um, I went up there and chit-chatted with her and, you know, I, I can't figure out like what is my style. You can look at it, you can go, oh, that looks like something Jennifer Priest would make, but I can't describe it. So maybe I need to hone in on what I, what I gravitate to and pay attention to that a little more.
0: You know, well, I think it's funny because I think I I have that problem, too, of people are like, oh, Julia, it's such a distinct style. And I'm like, I do. Because for me, again, like you, I see, like, different techniques, different ideas, different things happening. But I think, like, and this is part of the stepping stone that I think stencils are and a lot of those other things heading into mixed media is. But, like, as soon as you start, I think, putting your own hand in things, do you know what I mean, when you're not yeah. using – um set die cuts and you're not using like set you know whatever it is I mean it's even like the simple act of mixing two colors together to create your own unique color like I think the more that you're authentically yourself like you could do different techniques the same technique different subjects the same subject but it's always going to look like you because it's coming out of your hand in a more authentic way
2: yeah I guess what I'm saying I'm having trouble like stepping back and I find like what the common thread is you know because I can look at stuff and be like oh that looks like something Julie made um I think it's easier for people outside to look and see what the common thread is I think it's harder to like look at yourself and this is something I struggle with to look at myself and figure out okay what is the common thread between all the things that I'm making
0: Yeah, and I think, like, that's the great thing about, I still remember, so my friend Natalie and I once sat down, and we were like, okay, I'm going to describe what your work looks like to me, and you're going to describe what my work looks like to you, right? Right.
2: Mm -hmm. And then
0: when we both did it, it was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But it was, again, having that outside perspective of someone is really helpful. And I think it's even like the thing where I can see where somebody else is making a mistake or doing something that's not helping their business, but I can't see it with myself. So it's always helpful to have like a crafty friend who's, you know, and this is one of the things I love about having friends who are in this business is because then they can say, hey, you stop, you know, screwing up here. You need to look at, you know, X, Y, or Z, and that's really helpful.
2: Yeah, I guess that kind of goes back to the thing that we're talking about, about asking advice from people. Um, I just had my blog critiqued by Alexa Westerfield, and I was just like, oh, you're hurting my feelings, Alexa. But, you know, it's things that I'm like, ooh, I know I was doing that wrong. I really need to, like, fix that, or I could be doing this better. Um, but having people that you can trust that, you know, are giving you that advice in love because they want you to succeed is, is really essential.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing about being open to it. That is, I think the single hardest part of any of it is because we all want that pat on the head. We all want that affirmation that what we're doing is amazing. But it's like, I remember crying and crying and crying. This is probably, like, 10 years ago when I had applied for, like, CKU or Memory Makers Masters or something like that and didn't make it. And believe me, I applied for all of them and never made anything. Mm -hmm. But, like, I remember just crying and being crushed and thinking they were stupid and how could they not, you know, pick me and I was so awesome. And then I look back at the work that I was doing and I compare it to the work that they were choosing and I'm like, oh, duh. Duh. You know, there's so many problems here and I see exactly why this isn't what they were looking for. And I'm glad that that rejection made me work harder and push myself to try to do better, you know?
2: Yeah, and I think sometimes the industry or the part of the industry we're trying to get into isn't ready for what you're doing. So there's I, I experienced the same thing and I was like I feel like my work is really commercial so I'm like why am I getting rejected all the time well they weren't ready for what I was doing and maybe I wasn't ready to work with them because now it's a totally different dynamic I mean I never imagined I would get invited to be on teams and that happens now and not just teams where it's like hey here's some free stuff like teams where I actually get paid and I'm like wow I never even imagined this was a possibility i And maybe at that time when I was really pushing, I wasn't ready and they weren't ready for what I was doing.
0: Yeah, I do think timing is a huge part of stuff because and I'm really, you know, it's it's like one of those things they say, which is you have to be ready for the opportunities that come your way. I remember years ago on two P's. There was a woman whose name is now, I cannot remember, maybe her username was maybe Torm or something like that, but she used to talk about this thing, which I didn't totally understand at the time, but I get now, where she said, at any given moment, she has 10 layouts that are ready to be published on a variety of subjects, and they've never been shown online. And that was because should an opportunity for anything come her way, an article or somebody's looking for a particular thing, she has a little portfolio of stuff to hand over. And it's not dissimilar from what you're talking about working with a licensing coach that should a licensing opportunity come your way, you want to have that stuff ready for it. And I think it even makes me think of like the opportunity I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast where I'm working with Brother now as a spokesperson, like I – It's not a gig that I would have been able to do five years ago. It's probably not a gig I would have been able to do three years ago because I wasn't there. I wasn't prepared and I didn't have the skill set. But I feel like, you know, and who knows, in five years maybe I'd be much better at it than I am now. But it is one of those things where I think you do have to be ready. And I agree with you too, the market has to be ready. Like I look right now at how many people are doing handwritten titles on their layouts and I'm thinking – um. That was every layout I did back in the, you know, the early 2000s. But that was just a different time.
2: Yeah, like, yeah, and with the paint and all that, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Um, I don't know.
0: I, well, no, I mean, I think this is just one of those things, which is you have to remember, like, I remember being very excited many, many, many years ago when I thought it uh, looked like I had an opportunity to do a product line with Prima. And I was super excited and then they basically rejected it and said that they felt that their people weren't ready and it was too painty and artsy and whatever else. And if you look at what's going on in their company now, right, it's just Mm that the the timing was all wrong, you know, or I was the wrong person at that time or who knows what it was. So I think like with all rejections in your career, you have to keep some perspective. Like you have to learn how could you be better, but then you also have to look at You know, what are what is the situation and, you know, are you fitting into what the company's wanting at the moment? I mean, when you come out of acting like one of the things we say to people is, yes, you may not have gotten the role because you weren't that good. But you also may not have gotten the role because they were looking for someone who was blonde and you're a brunette.
2: You know, and I think that's a good perspective to have in this industry, too, because, you know, a lot of people will get rejected from design teams or from being published or whatever and for me, like, because I've been on the other side of it, like, I managed ClearSnaps design team, I've managed other teams in the past, there's people who I'm like, oh, their stuff is amazing, but it doesn't fit what we're doing. Or, you know, one, one of the biggest things that comes out, and this is what I think people really need to be conscious of if they want to get into this industry, is using competitors' products. Um, I think people need to be, like, really authentic in using a company's product so if you're approaching a company and you're like hey I really want to work with you but all of the work on your blog is with the other company's product 90% of the time with their competitor's product like I can't choose that person no matter how amazing they are so for me I try to be very conscious of that and these are like lessons that I've just learned over time like geez why am I getting rejected all the time maybe it's because I was using the other company's product so much and I had no idea
0: Yeah, because people obviously want you to authentically and genuinely love their product and not just be doing it for other reasons.
2: Yeah, well, and then it just doesn't come across authentic Mm -hmm. to their readers. Like all of a sudden you're using another company's product and saying how amazing it is when for the last three years you've been with some other company. Like, so I think there's some things that's just like lessons, learning from experience. Some of it is like maturity like, I don't know, I think maybe I was, like, really naive when I was a lot younger because I feel like I had to learn a lot of lessons (laughs) when I came into this industry and just on perspective and um, what people want on handling rejection, on on getting beat, like, I, I mean, I go through this whole, like, grieving process when stuff happens. I'm like, what? This company didn't like my stuff or I didn't get to do this thing that I really wanted to do and so I'd be upset about it for a while and then I step back and I'm like, okay, what, what could I, what, what is this telling me that I could improve upon or change or how might this like objectively not be a right fit? And then if I really want to do something or affect some kind of change or, or do something uh, meaningful, how, what's another way that I can do that? Maybe this way isn't going to work. It's like that thing where they say when one door closes, maybe a window opens kind of deal.
0: Yes, although I'm a big fan of when a door closes, you kick the window open, but yes.
2: Oh, well, yeah, that works too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we actually need to wrap up. We've been talking for about an hour now, Um, but I want to ask you one question before we leave, which is, where did Hydrangea Hippo come from?
2: (laughs) I get asked that all the time. So it came from, I was at a Charity Wings back when it was called Scrapbook Royalty. I was at a Charity Wings event and there are a bunch of scrapbookers, and none of us really knew each other, just acquaintances. And we all decided to hop in this one girl's car, I think it was a BMW, and go check out this store called Pink Pineapple. And I had been there before, and I loved it, and some of the girls hadn't. And so we just got on this discussion about, like, names of companies, you know. At that time, there was a kit club, kit club called Label Tulip, and there was Pink Paisley, and a bunch of these, like, wacky names, And we just started kind of saying like, well, if I have a company, I'm going to name it like polka dot potato or whatever. And, uh, we just started joking. And so I just threw out hydrangea hippo, like trying to be funny. And that like probably right around the same time, this was in 2007, 2008, people were like, Oh, you really need a name for your business other than your name. And all I had was hydrangea hippo. And then in, um, I didn't have any other ideas. And in 2008, I moved to Honeysuckle Street in Hesperia. Yeah. And I was like, all right, the deal is sealed. (laughs) The H's (laughs) have it. Yeah. I almost moved to Honeysuckle Street. We looked at a house on Honeysuckle Street. (laughs) Wow.
0: So, I mean, I'm Hydrangea Street. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So then, uh, Jennifer, where can people find you online? I'm guessing it's Hydrangea Hippo.
2: Yeah, everything's Hydrangea Hippo. Um, you can also find me at Jennifer P. Priest. Uh, there's another Jennifer Priest that does life coaching uh, who found Jennifer Priest on a lot of the uh, social media stuff. So at Hydrangea Hippo, you can find me on all different um, platforms or at Jennifer P. Priest. I'm on most platforms under that too. And
0: mom, you've been so super chatty during this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I really just felt I like I had to tell criticism. you. that's not criticism. it's never how could I criticize the most perfect mother on earth
1: well how could you criticize that I let you talk
0: that's also a good point
1: is there anything you wanted to add before we go I don't think adding I have some thoughts and I just wanted to ask both of you have careers that are very founded on the internet I don't think either of you could have the type of career you have without it and you both have lots of skills and interests. So one of the issues is always, how do you define your brand so that in the wild west of the internet, people can find you? How, how do you... What is your brand, each of you, do you think,
2: at this time? Jennifer? Hmm. You know, I did. I built, I built the majority of my business just from being online. Um, I would say you know it kinda goes back to what I feel like my mission is I try to have my brand always reflect what my mission is in crafting which is to make things approachable and uh, so that people feel like they want to do it or that they can do it and they want to do it so I guess looking across the internet at any of the social media platforms I'm on or on my website I do everything with that in mind that hey, I'm a real person and I make these cool things and you can make them too. And Julie?
0: Well, you know, I would say in some ways, I would say similarly, like I'm all about artsy made easy, trying to make um, things that seem complicated easy for people. And then I think in my brand is, I certainly the art journal every day that's hosted on my blog every week. I think that's a really important part of it. Um, The stencils are huge. Um, And then I, I think overall just I continually across whether I'm scrapbooking or quilting or you know making a collage or whatever I have a sort of um hey you know that's a happy accident don't worry about it don't sweat it relax have a good time the point is to enjoy and to play and not to have some sort of controlled outcome and I think you know showing that I make mistakes all the time is a big part of my brand too because man if it wasn't I'd be in big trouble because I'd be <laughs> lying all the time but yes I make a lot of mistakes
1: and what's your brand mom my brand is doing whatever I can to help you including oh. nagging which I think is a really important part of my
0: job Clearly, because Jennifer, I was going to say, it was so funny when you were saying that you don't care about like a typo, because guess who calls me every morning to tell me what the typos and misspellings and grammatical mistakes in my
2: blog posts are. (laughs) Well, you know why I don't care about the typo? Because I'm like, hey, I got a degree in English. I already know how to spell it. It's not because I didn't spell it. It's because I'm doing stuff fast. Okay. There
0: you go. (laughs) My mom likes to start the conversation with, well, you must have been tired when you wrote that blog post because there are three typos. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and I, and like going back to the branding thing, um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to kind of step back and look at yourself and that's, it's good to have other people help you with that. You know, sometimes we get, and this is something that I'm so guilty of. Like you asked me, what's your brand, what's your elevator speech? I'm like, I don't know, because you really got to step back and develop that and look at that. And and we get so caught up in the day to day, like, Oh, I got to make this, I got this deadline. I got to write this blog post. And forget about developing that part of a business that's so important.
0: You know, that's actually a great idea for a podcast. I feel like we should get a bunch of people together who have strong brands and be like, okay, tell us about your brand and how you came to that. That would be a really interesting roundtable discussion, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, I'll listen to it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, so on that note, let's wrap up and say, as always, you can find me at designs.typepad.com And do leave us your comments or questions at designs.com slash arting, A-R-T-I-N-G. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast and thanks so much for listening and thanks to jennifer for being here and as always thanks to my mom for being the smartest lady in the room and we will see you the next time on the adventures in arting podcast (laughs)